Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Welcome to Censored, the podcast that tries to corrupt your morals with banned books. I'm Aoife Vritnach, a historian obsessed with how the Irish censor defined the words indecent and obscene. In this episode, I'll be talking about Carol by Patricia Highsmith. She is well known for her psychological thrillers. You may have read The Talented Mr. Ripley or seen the film adaptation. Highsmith takes a reader to places you would not expect. You won't know what to think about obsession, guilt and murder after you read one of her books. But Carol, or The Price of Salt, as it was first titled, is generally defined as a romance novel. Now, this is the first explicitly queer text I've read. Very few of my book choices so far referenced queer sexuality, so I decided I had to pick a book to redress the balance. It's the story of Therese and Carol's love affair, which was conducted under the gaze of ex-husbands, private detectives and angry boyfriends. Carol was published in 1952, but wasn't banned in Ireland until 1959. I thought this was odd, since it was clearly marketed as a lesbian romance novel. Bantam Press, a pulp fiction press, published an edition in 1953 that sold very well, so it wasn't an obscure or marginal text. The oversight makes no sense, because the censors banned hundreds of pulp fiction books in the 50s. They obviously kept a close eye on pulp fiction presses, Is it possible that the censor didn't take the lesbian romance bit seriously? To debate this, and explore the rude bits with me, I'd like to welcome back to the podcast Dr. Sinead McEnany of The Open University. You may remember her from Series 1, where we talked about Catch-22. Hi, Sinead. Hi, Aoife. Thanks for having me back. Good to talk to you again. Uh, What's your job title again? Tell us. I'm a uh, staff tutor and lecturer in history at the Open University. I have an interest in U.S. history, 1960s U.S. history, particularly protest. Um, but I have a vested interest in American lesbian pulp novels. As a big reader of same. Indeed. 
So last time, as you may remember, I hated Catch-22, but this time I love this book, so we have lots to talk about. Okay. But for the beverages of the book, actually, if, you know, people want to drink along, I'm going to choose two. The first half of the book I thought was really tense and kind of nervy, and it's, it feels to me like as if people have had too much coffee. And there were a lot of uneasy coffees drunk in cocktail bars or at breakfast counters. But I hate coffee, so I would choose brandy as the drink of choice. And that appears in part two as a kind of a settling your nerves drink. But what would you choose? I would definitely have a martini, which also (laughs) figures. Yes, they drank a fair few martinis as well. To start with the usual question, why was it banned? I mean, why do you think it was banned? I think that the Bantam Press edition, that the cover was pretty racy and might have drawn their attention. I mean, it talks about the novel of a love society forbids. And that seems to me to alert possible censors to something dodgy going on here. But what do you think? This is a novel about two women who fall in love. Uh, One is a wealthy, married, middle-class suburbanite, Carol. And the other is a sort of mysterious, self-conscious and quite young woman, 19-year-old woman, Therese, who meet by chance and fall in love. So once you know the premise of the novel, it's no wonder that the Irish censors banned it. I don't know whether they took the lesbian romance seriously or whether it just took them a little time to get to know that this book had lesbian romance in it. Um, the first edition was quite plain. The cover, uh, was gray with a little bit of red writing on it and the image of spilled salt. So you write the Bantam Press edition that is published as a pulp novel. Um, so a very cheap novel. The first publication of this was 53 cents. So very cheap for you to buy. The cover of this was a sort of Mills and Boone style two women in a suggestive sort of pose looking at each other. And clearly the censors, once they see this, must know what the content of the novel is likely to be before they even open it. It sort of followed the standard presentation of a, of a pulp novel, all of which had sort of sexualized or Mills and Booney type sex in them. So I don't know why the Irish censors banned it, but I can imagine why the Irish censors banned it. And as you read through the novel, it becomes very clear that it's definitely not the sort of thing that respectable young ladies in Ireland in the 1950s ought to be reading. I'm sure you'll agree, Aoife. (laughs) Well, I mean, my definition of respectable young ladies probably doesn't agree with the censors one. (laughs) So if we think that it wasn't the cover because obviously the cover was there for six years before they banned it. So for me, I think it was banned if they read the book. I mean, definitely by chapter eight, they would have been totally offended by chapter eight. What point do you think they would have freaked out? So it doesn't take you long to get that this is a lesbian love story. So I went through the book again uh, with this question in mind and the first kind of clear indication we get I think is in chapter five when 
Therese is out on a date with her boyfriend, Richard, and uh, they're having a perfectly normal conversation about all kinds of things. But all the while she's with Richard, she's thinking about Carol. So a lot of the book is written through internal monologue rather than explicit dialogue. There's a real tension in the book between what's going on in the public and what's happening in the private. And her private thoughts in chapter five on this date are all about Carol, even though publicly she's with Richard. She may as well be with Carol. And she talks about love with Richard, but she's thinking about love with Carol. So she says in her internal monologue, it would be almost like love what she felt for Carol, except that Carol was a woman. It was not quite insanity, but it was certainly blissful. So her entire date, chapter five, with Richard is all about her feelings for Carol. And I think any censor with his spidey senses tingling, would read that and go, aha, there's something lesbianic afoot here. Actually, it's chapter five as well, where she reveals, where Therese reveals that she has tried to sleep with Richard and that it's been a total disaster. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting the way that it's it's written. I'll just read out this piece. There was always that tremendous block of not even wanting to try it, which reduced it all to a kind of wretched embarrassment and nothing more each time he asked her. She remembered the first night she had let him stay, and she writhed again inwardly. It had been anything but pleasant, and she had asked right in the middle of it, Is this right? How could it be right and so unpleasant, she had thought. I mean, combined with the, you know, that love statement a few pages earlier in that paragraph, it should really have been pretty clear to the censor what was going on. But then I think chapter eight was really interesting because of its explicit discussion of homosexuality. In Highsmith's book, she's kind of incremental the way she writes. It builds up. And I think by chapter eight, you know, she brought all of this out into the open. Yeah, um, I think that... The thing to bear in mind here is that this is a very personal story for Highsmith herself and is an extension of her own personal struggles and her fears around her own homosexuality and her difficulties in her own relationships um, and her struggles with herself. And... Chapter eight, I think, speaks to some of these struggles, but also um, speaks to a, a desire on the part of Therese to sort of confront things in a way that maybe Highsmith found difficult herself. So she asks Richard, has he ever had uh, feelings for another man? And she mentions that she, you know, and then he responds and he says, have you ever felt anything for a woman? She's like, oh, no, 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 no. So, you know, it's this sort of, you're right, explicit discussion of homosexuality, but also the fear of how to uh, ex uh, sexual desire or different sexual desire to oneself um, and the hope, I think, that other people would understand it from their perspective. But again, a censor reading this 
would be very clear very quickly that this is a book about same-sex love. This is a book that undermines heterosexual uh, normalcy, that this is something that uh, might put unwieldy ideas into people's heads. It might give them impure thoughts. Impure thoughts. That's exactly the phrase I should have used. (laughs) And God knows where the impure thoughts would lead. They might lead to impure actions as well. They might indeed, although I'm sure none of that happened in Ireland in the 1950s. Of course not. (laughs) God knows. They didn't write books about it anyway, even if it did. (laughs) And it was, this book was like, she got a lot of fan mail, didn't she? People wrote to her at her publishers to say how important they found the book. Yeah, this is really the first mainstream, even though we call it a pulp, we sometimes call it a pulp novel, it wasn't really a pulp novel in the correct manner of speaking. It wasn't really the same as other pulp that was being that was being produced at the time. And so in lots of ways this was the first mainstream optimistic book about lesbians to make it into bookshelves for regular Americans to access and indeed ideally regular Irish people that's what the fan mail was about it was about not only the writing in the book but also this story of quite a positive a positive love story and a literary one too I suppose a lot of the pulp stuff was kind of disposable cheap and cheerful and often sensational but this is not a sensational book this is indeed this is real literature you know it's proper literary stuff correct i mean it's important not to discount the literary value of pulp fiction um particularly of lesbian pulp fiction which started to emerge as a genre or a subgenre uh towards the end of the pulp era so if you think about pulp fiction really having its heyday through the 1940s, the first lesbian pulp novel, properly speaking, was published in 1950. Yeah, the genre of lesbian pulp fiction in the 1950s tended to be very uh, hypersexualized, very much about uh, the in- intensity and obsession of feelings, but also quite tra- quite quite lightweight in the ways that these feelings were dealt with, quite sensationalist, unlike this book, which is like proper literature. I mean, not to say that it doesn't have, you know, what the censor would consider rude bits, as well as overall Indeed. general tendency to deprave. Um, <laughs> Indeed. I love that phrase, general tendency. It's like, what is a general tendency when it's at home? So which rude bit would you like to read out? So I... I I struggle with this sense of the rude bit. I can certainly see the general tendency to deprave. Um, Oh, you sound like the censor now, Sinead. Be careful. Well, insofar as if one was reading this as a, I can imagine a kind of, you know, young woman reading this, thinking about her own sexuality and realising in some rural town in Ireland that, uh, wow, other other people have these feelings too, right? And so in that respect, I can understand the general tendency towards depravity. But actually, the rude bits in this book are themselves quite romantic. So 
it's not really rudeness so much as romance, but explicit romance. And I'll read you a bit from chapter 15, which is really the kind of the beginning of the physical relationship between Therese and Carol. So up until this point, Therese has met Carol by chance. And between the two of them, Carol and Therese cook up this plan to take a road trip. And so we meet them in chapter 15 en route on their road trip. And they stop off in a town called Waterloo and they stay in a motel. And this is where the trouble starts. Therese still felt the effects of what she had drunk, the tingling of the champagne that drew her painfully close to Carol. If she simply asked, she thought, Carol would let her sleep tonight in the same bed with her. She wanted more than that, to kiss her, to feel their bodies next to each other's. Therese thought of the two girls she had seen in the Palermo bar. They did that, she knew, and more. And I'm skipping a little bit. As if her emotions had been in abeyance all the past hours or days, they flooded her now as she watched Carol opening her suitcase, taking out, as she always did first, the leather kit that contained her toilet articles, dropping it onto the bed. She looked at Carol's hands, at the lock of hair that fell over the scarf tied around her head, at the scratch she had gotten days ago across the toe of her moccasin. What are you standing there for? Carol asked. Get to bed, sleepyhead. Carol, I love you. Carol straightened up. Therese stared at her with intense, sleepy eyes. Then Carol finished taking her pyjamas from the suitcase and pulled the lid down. She came to Therese and put her hands on her shoulders. She squeezed her shoulders hard, as if she were exacting a promise from her, or perhaps searching to see if what she had said were real. Then she kissed Therese on the lips, as if they had kissed a thousand times before. Don't you know I love you, Carol said. So that's quite a romantic piece that, yes, I'm sure the censors would have seen as some terrible depravity because it's between two women as opposed to between a heterosexual couple. And that's the first time in the book that really they uh, explicitly declare their feelings for each other. Um, And it's a real turning point in the book. And little do we know at that point that they're also being watched and surveilled and that this, in fact, is one of the ways that they're going to be caught out later on. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. 
The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable splash refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. And there is a really interesting piece in that about the girls that she had seen before. You know, so she has at an earlier point in the book, she saw uh, a group of girls, which she, she implies are, you know, butch lesbians in a bar and she thinks okay so that's the sort of person who's into girls and one of the themes of the book is that she neither she nor carol look like that or act like that but yet they're into girls yeah and in in this way really we're seeing a departure from the kind of stereotypical uh public face of lesbianism in 1950s america which was often cast in these terms of butch femme relationships, neither Carol or Therese would be identifiably lesbian in the 1950s sense of the word. And the subversion, if you like, in the book is that they fall in love with each other outside of that stereotypical framework of what lesbian means in the 1950s. In some respects, I found it quite radical. And one of the most important ways I found it radical, actually, after the sex scene in chapter 15, chapter 16 opens with, uh, I'm just going to read the first paragraph. Therese went out to get some newspapers while Carol was dressing. She stepped into the elevator and turned around in the exact centre of it. She felt a little odd, as if everything had shifted and distances were not quite the same balance was not quite the same. She walked across the lobby to the newspaper stand in the corner. Now, what I love about this is one of the problems with a lot of sexually explicit material is that magic cock trope, which I've come across before, where women are made into new people by sex with men. But this is, this isn't about sex, really. This is, you know, she's had a massive emotional experience. And it's the next day she feels as if the world has shifted. And I think that's a really interesting way to play with how sex can change people in the context of a literary narrative. You know, obviously, no magic cocks here, which is great. It's nice for a break. Not that we know of anyway. Not that we know of. Um, But also that that um, vignette also shows that even after what might be read by contemporaries as a perversive perversion, uh, a perversion experience. Life goes on as normal. She gets up the next day and she buys the paper. So yes, life has changed, but actually things more or less carry on in a perfectly normal manner for both of them. Except for, of course, the whole structure of the book around surveillance and tension and disguise and concealment that is kind of put around their love story. It makes it a very gripping read, but I found I was at the edge of my seat. I was, you know, I was really waiting to see what would happen because they're being followed by this detective. I think it's really important to just situate the book in the context of 1950s America. 
this is the beginning really of the start of lesbian sub- subcultures coming out of the closet. The timing is important because the state and the mechanisms of the state were deeply suspicious of anything that was different in the context of the Cold War and anything that might threaten American masculinity and heteronormativity. And so if you think about the timing, this novel is coming out at the same time as McCarthyism, at the same time as a renegotiation of America's place as one of the most important powers in the post-war era. Nobody dies in this novel. None of, neither of these women die in this novel. This is not a morality tale about how sexual deviance, as it would have been termed at the time, will cause calamity, right? So the moral bit in this, in this novel is about the surveillance, about how people who are trying to get on with their lives in a perfectly normal way are being surveilled by, in this case, detective, but also you could think about it as surveilled by the state in a Red Scare or McCarthyite manner. The theme of being caught out is extremely important in the book. Um, and Carol and Therese's love affair is discovered because Carol's husband hires a private detective who literally spikes their hotel room in Waterloo, uses this listening spike to hear what was going on. And this sort of other plot twist, if you like, speaks to the fear of being caught out, uh, which was always there for closeted and semi-closeted gays and lesbians through the 1950s and the 1960s. And most often we think of this in terms of police raids on gay bars, very common throughout the period. But there's also this sort of voyeurism going on. So in this case, we're talking about the voyeurism of the husband, but there's also a voyeurism of the state making it such that sexuality is something that's governed by the apparatus of the state or watched by or seen as problematic by the mechanisms of the state. And so this is a period when suspected communists are being blacklisted and so-called suspected homosexuals um, are being blacklisted as enemies of the state and by extension as enemies of the heteronormative family. And what's interesting in this book is that by the end, the resolution, there is a breakup of the heteronormative family, but there is also a sense that something new is being produced in terms of family. And what's very powerful in the book is that at the very end, spoiler alert, I'm sorry, at the very end, Carol shrugs off that being caught out. I mean, they laugh about it at the end. Even though her life has been destroyed in lots of ways, changed fundamentally, the relationship with her child has changed. She feels quite, blasé is the wrong word, but she feels she feels quite comfortable with the fact that they have been found out. And that's quite an unusual thing. Um, this is not the story of somebody who's completely destroyed. She picks herself up. She's going to get a new apartment. Her life is going to continue. And she wants Therese to be part of that life. 
So it's like a new family is being born. And that's also extremely subversive in the context of early 1950s commentary on homosexuality. So effectively, we're saying people should read this book because it's really good. Yeah, it's funny because Highsmith didn't really want to publish this book and was persuaded to publish the book and needed the money after and wanted to continue with her career trajectory, but needed felt that she needed to, to publish this. Yeah, for for her own sense of self, eventually. But she was always very uncomfortable about this book. And well before the book was published, she wrote in her diary, 1940, no writer would ever betray his secret life. It would be like standing naked in public. And I think that she saw the price of salt or Carol as having the potential to reveal her nakedness in public. And so it's really not until the 1980s when she takes ownership of the book under her own name and admits that it is her work. It's quite interesting to compare The Price of Salt with Ripley and the rest of her oeuvre, because up until the mid-1980s, she never admitted that it was hers. And, uh, you know, I think that in lots of ways, the characters in The Price of Salt are much less dark than most of the other characters that she writes about. This is this does stand out in her own biography as a peculiar book. There are definitely parallels with the other things that she writes. But this is this is special. This is really personal for her. This is a real insight into her as a her her own intellect, her own sense of self, her own feelings. I do think though that it 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 gets separated out from her other books a lot, where people say she writes psychological thrillers and one romance called Carol. And I just like to say for anyone who thinks they don't like romance, although this is a romance novel, there's also so much tension still. I think that really marks it out as as a Highsmith book, you know, it has that uh, sense of unease with the surveillance and everything. And it's still an exciting book. So even if you think, you know, lesbian romance mightn't be for you, this is still a great book to read. I don't know who would think that lesbian romance wasn't for them. <laughs> but also this, yeah, it's a very tense novel. Um, and if you don't read the book, I highly recommend the movie, uh, which uh, I think is really, really well done. And Kate Blanchett certainly captures the tension uh, of the book uh, in her delivery of Carol. So, for censorship bingo, I wonder how Carol rates. On the first line, just holler if you know I'm, I'm missing anything, Sinead. Feminism? No. No orgies, as you said. Uh, no drugs. I didn't spot any drugs, even at the, the showbiz parties. Um, masturbation? No. Racism? Didn't notice anything. No sex toys. It's a toys. very white New York. It's a very white New York they live in. That's true. I mean, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's everybody's white. Sex toys. Menstruation. No. Uh, no. Uh, sex work? No. Don't think so. Uh, extramarital pregnancy? No. But there was extramarital sex between Trace yeah. and Richard. Crime? 
Well, at one point, Richard does sort of accuse Carol of committing a crime in her relationship with Therese. Well, homosexuality was a crime. Yeah. So in that respect, they are breaking the law of sorts. So there is crime in strictly speaking. Okay. So we should tick that box then. Sure. Yeah. Politics? Well, no other than the all sex is politics. Uh, there's no other well, type of politics. Except that there are, there are references to capitalism. So at one point early on in the book, um, Therese is having a conversation with Carol, um, and, uh, she's talking about her work and she's talking about various things. And Therese stops and thinks to herself, this is just like the hundreds of conversations I've had with Richard about capitalism. And, you know, it is possible to read this book through a very political lens um, where uh, Therese is involved in a world of commodities, uh, selling things in the department store. Richard is involved in a world of capitalism. And so is Carol, really. So there, it is possible to read this as a critique of hyper-consumerism and hyper-capitalism. But you'd have to try to get beyond the lesbian sex to do that. <laughs> you say it like that's, like that's a very bad idea. Well, let me put it this way. When I first read this novel in university, I didn't care about capitalism, but I did care deeply about lesbian sex. Yeah, fair enough. I think the censor didn't notice oblique critiques of capitalism so much either, I have to say. So the next one, breasts. Yes, there, there is explicit mention of boobs. Sexual assault. I mean, her encounters with Richard are pretty awful, but, you know, that's just because she's not into it rather than it being assault. Contraception. No. Uh, no discussion of abortion. Infidelity. Yes. Yes, because she is still married, isn't she? Correct. Yes. You see, I kind of thought she was actually divorced, but she's separated. Oral sex, no graphic violence. No, don't think so. No bestiality. No explicit references of genitalia. No blasphemy. Obviously, LGBT plus, obviously, the whole book. Divorce, yes. And there was no swearing. So we have one, two... Three, four, five. Five. Five out of 25. Which isn't too bad, really. It's it's kind of on the scale of most of the books. They, they hover around the five to seven mark. I guess it depends on what weighting you're giving all of these things. Because there's enough, there's a lot of lesbianism in this book. So, you know, for a censor, I'd say that outweighs quite a lot of other things. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that it, it only just ticks off occasions, and that can be a glancing occasion, or it can be the whole book. Well, that was great, Sinead. Thank you for all of that. I got a new understanding of how the surveillance state might be represented in this book. I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> that was really cool. <laughs> I mean, I didn't make that up out of my own head. People have written about this, but uh, yeah, there's it, it's, it's often read as uh, a critique of the kind of Cold War era and moral purity of the Cold War era. I'm okay with you making things up out of your own head, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine by me. That's what I'm doing right now. (laughs) 
For the next episode, I'm moving on from this well-known American author, Patricia Highsmith, to a popular but now forgotten US writer, Irving Wallace. I'd never heard of him until stumbling upon his name in the blacklist. His 1960 book, The Chapman Report, was banned straight away in Ireland. It didn't even get a few years grace the way Carroll did. Wallace used the life and work of Dr. Alfred Kinsey as a base for his novel, disguising Kinsey as Dr. Chapman. Academic studies of sexology were such a hot topic that writers of popular fiction used them for inspiration. I'm expecting a very high score in censorship bingo if Wallace is going to talk about all types of human sexual behaviour. Until the next time, indulge your general tendencies for depravity. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.